Well, good morning. Let's stand together and let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Jude. Sunday morning studying the book of Jude together. And if you're new to the Bible, go to the final book of the Bible, Revelation, and turn left, but not too fast because Jude is just a single page typically. As we're getting uh, there, just a reminder that on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and currently studying the Gospel according to Luke. We'll head into chapter 22 tonight, and it's all headed toward the cross and beautiful section of Scripture, and each of you are invited to come out tonight. Verse 12, these are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful this morning for the greatness of your love for us, the greatness of your grace in our lives. We are a testimony to the wonder of those two things. We are so grateful for the access that we have to you in prayer right now and offering our worship and our praise as we've just done. We thank you for Jesus' sacrifice to allow our prayers and our praise to go right to you upon your throne. And as we have spoken to you, worshiping you in spirit and in truth, now, Lord, we've come also for that part of the work of your spirit of you speaking to us. And so we pray that you would speak to us through your word and that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit wants to speak to us as a church and what you want to speak to us individually. And we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In verses 5 through 11, which we have been covering the last couple of weeks, Jude described the characteristics of these uh, men, these false Christians that he um, identified by calling them certain men uh, who had uh, come into the church. They'd crept in. They were endeavoring to turn the grace of our God into lewdness, and they denied the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we come into verses 12 through 15, Jude continues in that same vein. This whole section is a, a continued description of them, but now he begins to address it from a little different angle as he describes the influence that these people have, not only upon a local church that they're operating in, but the influence that they can have in a personal relationship with someone who is a, uh, a real, genuine Christian. And then in verses 19, or 16 through 19, he lists the sins that they're practicing in their lives, the ungodly character that marked their lives, which they are trying to uh, protect and they are trying to accommodate uh, in, in a, their attempt to redefine uh, Christianity. And so we begin with their uh, ungodly influence in verse 12. And uh, this section is really uh, very sober what he's addressing, but one of the most beautiful 
uses of, of language in terms of trying to get us to understand the depth of the truth that Judas is trying to communicate to us. A, a commentator by the name of Moffat wrote, I think, most famously of this. He said, sky, land, and sea are ransacked for illustrations of the character of these men. And so it is. Jude begins by describing them in verse 12 as spots in your love feasts. And a love feast in the ancient world, the early church, what they would do is they'd come together for church, whether it might be a Sunday evening or Sunday afternoon or when it, whenever it would work for them in the Roman culture. And there would be a time of worshiping the Lord. There would be a time of studying His Word. But also part of the service was a time where they would eat a communal meal. Everyone would bring what they could to the meal based upon their means. They would then partake of that together as a family, speaking of unity. And then they would partake of the Lord's Supper, the ultimate communication of the unity uh, of the body of Christ. And when he talks about here uh, uh, love feasts, he's talking about the dinner that would be shared, the potluck we might call it, and then the Lord's Supper as well that was a part uh, of all of that. And of course, the Lord's Supper is one of the most uh, personal, uh, cherished things that we do as Christians and that uh, nurtures fellowship and unity among us as Christians. And Jude here declared that these false Christians, he said, their very presence there in that service and in and, and partaking in it, he said, he declared them to be a spot, in other words, a stain. They're a stain upon uh, that sacred gathering. And so in the same way that a shirt or a blouse is ruined or it's uh, soiled or spoiled uh, by virtue of a stain, in the same way they were staining, they were uh, ruining this uh, gathering. And so because while they took and partook of the the bread and the cup, the symbols of Jesus' body and blood, uh, given not only to provide us with the forgiveness of sins, but also in order that we might live a godly life and a holy uh, life, to become a new creation. And here they are, they're living lewd lives, they're enticing Christians to join them in their rebellion against God's commandments, they're rejecting God's lordship, uh, in the Christian life and deliberately living the very life that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again on the third day to deliver us from. And they were looking to destroy Christianity. The genuine Christianity is just de defined in the Bible and provided to us by the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, from the dead. Some uh, of these, some translations have this uh, section of the verse, they are hidden reefs in your love feast. And so it carries the same meaning. A hidden reef is a reef or stones, rocks that are just immediately under the surface um, of the water. And uh, for any boat to hit that is going to immediately mean uh, shipwreck for that boat. And in the same way, uh, Judas saying they craftily hide uh, their true ungodly intentions while uh, assembling with God's people, even in uh, the partaking of the Lord's Supper, and, uh, but uh, to engage in close contact with them leads, can only lead into spiritual uh, shipwreck. Now, um, I'm not a big ship guy. I like land. Uh, so I'm uh, Scottish and Irish. There wouldn't, there wouldn't be a continent discovered if it were up to me. We'd still all be living wherever we were. So uh, I don't, uh, the, uh, I, uh, I've been out on the San Francisco Bay, but only because I trust with my life and did uh, the person that was uh, in control of, of that boat. But we, got a, we drifted a little bit, got underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, and then we were drifting out toward, uh, it was a sailboat, out, out toward the big sea out there. And I'm saying, now we've got engines on this, don't we? We've got engines to get 
back to where we need to get, and we're not just going to do this sale thing to try and get back into the thing. So, uh, and the only thing worse than being on the ocean for me would be on the ocean and, and have a shipwreck. That would be the worst. And yet, here he's talking about with that, that kind of imagery. So I don't, I'm not on the sea. You imagine somebody who's a seafaring person. The worst thing that could possibly happen would be out in the middle of that mess and, and uh, beautiful ocean and, uh, and then have a shipwreck in, in the midst of it. And so uh, the horror of a shipwreck, as he describes it here, and they were a, a danger on this level spiritually. He said, they feast with you without uh, fear. In other words, they have absolutely zero business being uh, a part of the church the way that they were, professing to be Christians when they were not, and then partaking of the Lord's Supper and the unity of, of that uh, communal meal that they would enjoy ahead of time. Uh, but this was the level to which they were willing to go in order to appear to be a Christian and advance their ungodly uh, influence. I mean, you would have thought that somebody uh, in their shoes, that it would be uh, shameful for them. E that no matter who you were, you would be embarrassed to take what you believe and bring it into the intimacy of that moment and then try and uh, sway people away from the impact of the life and ministry of the one who's symbolized by the body and by the blood. But here Jude is saying they're utterly shameless. They don't have any qualms of conscience and uh, emboldened by almost indescribable pride and, and arrogance. Anyone that calls himself a Christian and thinks that they can improve upon Jesus' Christianity possesses an, uh, absolutely nothing of a very, very precious characteristic in any human being, and that is the fear of God. And, and as we see, they should have been afraid, uh, but they weren't. And Jude is going to tell them just that fact. You should be afraid, but you aren't here in just a moment. He says they only serve themselves, again in verse 12. In other words, they only care about themselves, this kind of person. Uh, for all of their words, all their religious talk and all of uh, these, uh, you know, verbalizing of things. They have no concern for God. They have no concern for His glory, no concern for His reputation, no concern for the body of Christ as a whole, no concern for Christians, and no concerns for the implications of their heresy upon Christianity, and no concern for the lost. Because if they change Christianity the way that they want to change Christianity, then there is no message for uh, the lost. And as long as they can engage in their lewdness and define Christianity as they like, contrary to the Lordship of God the Father and the Lordship of Jesus Christ, nothing else matters to them. Nothing else is so important as that to them. And you just stop there for a moment and try and put yourself in the shoes of that kind of a person. A person that can claim to be a Christian and believe that they can improve upon what Christ has done. And then to be bold enough to try and uh, do that and influence people in, in that way. I mean, what must be the sense of self-importance that a person possesses to do what they're doing. And yet, that's what they were doing. He says further that they're clouds without water carried about by the winds. And so, here's a word picture that um, every farmer certainly understands, and probably every person in the world understands on some level. We certainly understand it even if we're not farmers in the state of California, where we get, you know, one year of normal rain, and then we get four years of drought, and, uh, or however all of this uh, uh, works. And so here you have, as he pictures it, the land that's in a serious drought. Everyone's desperate for rain. Everybody's hoping for rain. Everybody's praying for rain. And then the clouds fill the sky, and they're dark, and they're promising rain, and then they just blow overhead and pass away without ever providing even a drop of rain. 
And that's disappointing. I remember my first big drought as an adult in the state of California was the drought of 1976 to 1977. There was a, a, a bigger one uh, back in the 60s, but I was so young, you don't even think about those kind of things. But I remember during those years looking up at the sky and if you saw anything, any kind of cloud at all, and if they were at any at dark at all, that any hope of rain, I mean, you just stared at them in, in that hope that a drop would fall somewhere and continually all the way through that drought, they just passed and, and uh, uh, went on their way and uh, disappointed over and over again. And here Jude uh, declares these false Christians to be uh, as useless as rainless clouds. And so they show up on the scene and they make impressive promises about the value of their teaching and of spiritual refreshment, the spiritual enrichment they're going to bring uh, into your life if you follow them, but they never deliver on what they promise. They have nothing to offer spiritually thirsty people. They only leave people uh, in a state of being empty and disappointed and frustrated. And he goes on and says in verse 12, they are late autumn trees without fruit. In other words, if a fruit tree hasn't borne fruit by late autumn, it's not going to bear fruit. They all bear fruit by that, by that time as you're just about to head uh, into, uh, into winter. And so something that keeps on promising uh, a fruitfulness to people, and you get to late autumn and there's still no fruit, well, uh, the time for excuses is over. And so Jude is saying they may talk a, a good game, but what they're advocating uh, is uh, incapable of producing spiritual fruit in a person's life. And, that, and the reason is given to us next there in verse 12. They are twice dead, uh, pulled up by the roots. And so they are as spiritually dead as a physical tree is when it not only dies in place, and you say that tree is dead, but then whoever owns the tree takes and topples it and pulls it up by the roots. Now that's a dead tree. And Jude, this is Jude's way of saying that they are totally dead. They are double dead totally incapable of producing spiritual fruit in their own lives, much less in anybody else's life. He goes on further in verse 13, and he says, they're raging, uh, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Now, I, I mentioned I don't like to be on the ocean, um, but I do like watching the ocean. It is an endless fascination to me to go anywhere on a seashore and find some kind of a place to sit and just watch it. And I can watch it for hours. I mean, the unbelievable power of watching uh, an ocean as it just hits continually, day and night, all of the time, pounding those waves up against that shore. Every wave is a little bit uh, different, and we realize that the power that is uh, uh, in further than what we're getting on the shore is uh, just immense power. And I love, I love to just look at the sheer power uh, of, of the ocean. It does something good in me, uh, between me and, and God. And God says that for all of their noise, like this raging sea foaming up their own shame, for all of their noise and ceaseless activity, they all, ultimate, all they ultimately produce is their own shame. And so you go to the beach, you watch the turbulence of, uh, of the sea producing wave after wave. It's a picture of unceasing uh, activity. But then if you walk along the beach, typically you'll find a cove somewhere. And uh, if you walk into that cove, there'll be uh, 
uh, all of the foam, all of the filth, all of the debris of the sea that is gathered there for whatever reason it gathers there. And I'm not talking about people's plastic bottles and stuff. The sea, in its own way, it takes those rubbery plants uh, that are there. I know they have a formal name. I didn't look it up. But you know what they are. They're all over there. And then the wood, and then there's all that uh, gunky foam. And when you come to that cove where all of that's gathering for whatever reason, there is no temptation to enter the ocean uh, there at all. And, and so here you have this uh, so-called um, uh, Christianity that they were advocating which accommodated lewdness, it rejected the lordship of God, and he says it can only produce uh, refuse in a life of shame. They're very active, they're very busy, they're very doing what they're doing, but all it uh, ultimately produces is a life of shame. And he uses the imagery of the clouds and the fruit tree, and, and, then, uh, and Jude declared that these people uh, produce nothing of spiritual value as he talks about clouds and fruit trees. And then here, though, when he talks about uh, that ocean and that shame, uh, he declares that um, they are not uh, harmless. So the waves produce something. They produce a filth and, and a life of shame. And so he's saying what these people are is spiritually, they're uh, powerless, but they are not harmless in what they're doing. And so Jude warns us not to follow them on their path uh, that leads to shame. He describes them as uh, wandering stars in verse 13, and that is shooting stars, so shooting stars in the, the night sky. A shooting star is a, is a star that is not uh, attached to anything uh, stable. It is operating disobedient to God's laws for uh, the solar system. And so they get a lot of attention when they shoot across the sky, uh, but they disappear just as quickly. And so you see these kind of people, they come on the scene, and they're like a shooting star. They defy God's uh, orbits. They defy God's laws uh, for morality, for uh, life, for how we're supposed to live. And they're a shooting star for a point in time, uh, but then pretty soon they disappear uh, just as quickly, and unlike uh, the Word of God that they try to pull us away from. As Jesus said, heaven and earth is going to pass away. It is going to pass away. But he said, my Word shall never pass away. And then second, uh, 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 these uh, shooting stars, they uh, operate randomly. They operate without law, which is what these Christians uh, wanting. These shooting stars were, as Jude writes this, to an ancient world, they're unreliable for navigation. So no one would take a boat that they own, the value of that boat and the cargo on that boat, and ever navigate or direct that boat on the basis of a shooting star. It would always be on the basis of something that is set by God in the heavens. It's reliable, and this is how you move your boat safely from one port to another. And, uh, and, and you would never trust in a shooting star. And, uh, and so in the same uh, the, uh, the, the, the same way in which these uh, teachers and these false Christians, uh, uh, the, the folly of us taking our own lives, which are more important than any boat. Our lives are eternal. And then looking and saying, now I'm going to attach my future. I'm going to attach how I navigate this life from one place to another on the basis of what they're saying rather than on the basis of the Word uh, of God, you'll end up in a shipwreck as a, re uh, as a result of it. And so uh, the, not only can uh, they, uh, what they're teaching has no means of helping us navigate the life that we're in right now, much less to deliver us to the destination that we desire at the end of this life, and that is uh, the glory of heaven. He says further uh, there at the latter part of verse 13 and then in verse 15, 
He said these false Christians are doomed and they're headed for the blackness of darkness forever. And that latter part of verse 13, uh, Jude informs us that far from leading anyone into heaven, they're not even going to heaven themselves. In fact, he says they are headed for the blackness of darkness forever. And the point that Jude is making is that they are headed for the severest judgment uh, that uh, of God that awaits them. Because as bad as other sins are, whether it would be uh, lying or stealing or, or even to physically murder another human being, uh, those are sins in the physical realm. They have no eternal consequence to them. What these false uh, teachers and influence were, uh, influencers were doing was worthy of the blackness of darkness forever because what they were advocating for in people's lives uh, had eternal uh, consequences. And so uh, James put it so well in James chapter 3, verse 1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, uh, teaching for God, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. It is very, very serious business to stand uh, up and claim to speak for God. If it isn't a serious business on the earth, it is a very serious business as it's viewed from, from heaven. And, and so it speaks uh, primarily to someone like me in a position within a church, but it is, uh, it is no less uh, uh, dire or awful for an individual person who claims to be a Christian to do this on an individual level, to move people away from the Christianity that is described into the Bible, <clears throat> in the Bible, excuse me, into a life of lewdness and rejecting the lordship of God in, in, uh, in doing so. Now, Jude in verses 14 and 15, he quoted from an ancient uh, Jewish book entitled The Book of Enoch in order to elaborate a little bit upon the, the judgment that awaits um, these people. And, and you might remember when we looked at verse 9, Earlier in the book, he quoted uh, from an ancient Jewish book entitled The Assumption of Moses, where he described the contention that occurred between Michael the archangel and Satan over the body uh, of, of Moses. And so uh, we shouldn't understand Jude to be saying that he's giving a, an, endor an entire endorsement to uh, this book of Enoch um, at all, but that he is merely uh, endorsing the section that he quotes here. At Jesus' second coming, the, he declares that we will, uh, Jesus will return to the earth with ten thousands of his saints. And ten thousands is a Hebraism. It's a, it means an uncountable number of his saints. This speaks to the second coming. It doesn't speak to the rapture because here he comes with his saints. The rapture, he will come for his saints. So this is him returning at his second uh, coming. And at that time, we're told that Jesus will judge all of the deeds and the words of the ungodly, including these apostate teachers and influencers. And so even if they die in this life, and it looks like, man, they got away with murder. They got away with being a heretic. They made a fortune off of that and became highly popular. And then they uh, died in old age, surrounded by all of the comforts of life. It doesn't look like they paid a price at all for the damage that they did uh, in, uh, to the, the body of, uh, of Christ. And, uh, and yet here we're told that even if they die in this life before uh, God's judgment is apparent, it'll happen in the life to come, and then they'll learn the hard way, the air of calling upon people to turn the grace of God into lewdness, and, uh, and then telling people there will be no consequence for sin. Uh, God won't. He's too gracious to uh, judge people. And then you get into verse 16 through 19. As I mentioned here, we're given a glimpse at the actual sins, the actual ungodly uh, character that mark their lives, and uh, some of, of which uh, uh, give us a very clear look at their true motives, 
behind uh, their changing the moral demands of Christianity and the denial of the lordship of God in the Christian life. Almost always when a person like this uh, rejects a commandment uh, of God in the Bible and then they advocate for the rejection of that commandment rather than advocating for, to people that they ought to uh, obey it. They don't do it on the basis of some kind of uh, deep, well-thought-out, uh, philosophical uh, argument. Almost always, they reject certain commandments of God or they attempt to redefine Christianity simply because they want to protect or they want to accommodate some practice of some sin that they are unwilling to repent of or to turn away from. And so he describes them in verse 16, they are grumblers. And so they don't come out into the open as the Greek word uh, speaks here for grumblers, they don't come out into the open and air their uh, grievances. What they do, their methodology is, they grumble their grievances against God and against His, com- uh, His commandments to individual people with the intent then of infecting them with their discontent. And so the, the, their method in, in kind of modern vernacular is very, very passive-aggressive in their methodology. They don't like something in the Bible, but they won't come right out and say it. And so they'll try and, and work it uh, in, a, in a quiet way and, and attack it on an, on an individual uh, basis. I think most of us have heard of the term Uh, a murmuring campaign, and that's what they wage. A murmuring campaign against God and certainly against the moral demands of uh, Christianity. The Greek word, again, that uh, Jude uses here for grumblers, it communicates uh, something additional, that when they grumble, uh, they blame others for the fix they're in. And, and so they grumble, but at the same time, they play the victim. They play the victim in, in the, the situation. They make themselves out to be the victim of the restraints of God's commandments upon their life and upon who they are. And, and this, you, this you always see. <clears throat> and they paint God as the bad guy, and they are the victim because God is keeping them from this certain thing that they think would fulfill uh, their life. And of course, grumbling and, and uh, murmuring is very contagious, very, very effective way uh, uh, of convincing people that God is wrong and that they are right. Think about the, the, almost the whole entire Old Testament related to the Jewish people. <clears throat> Moses had his hands full. I mean, those folks were real grumblers and complainers all the way through the wilderness wanderings and just about everything. They're complaining. And it only took just a very small group of people that began a murmuring campaign or a grumbling campaign, and pretty soon everybody's influenced by it. And that's the power of it. And that's the danger of it. And the person who comes, writes the book, <clears throat> goes on TV, preaches the, the, the sermon series or whatever it is, and then paints themselves as the victim. Look at how unjust God's command is. Look at how uh, you know, uh, unfair His, his command uh, is here in this area. And look what it requires of me to uh, obey it. I won't be able to be the person that I want to be and all of this and a very, very uh, effective means of, of converting people. He says further that they're complainers. And the Greek word for complainer here carries the idea of being a fault finder. And uh, one of the things that they're not aware of related to their lives typically, but we're to be aware of it, <clears throat> is that 
uh, all they can do is find fault with everyone, with anything. Typically, oftentimes this person will have a, is, a, is a fault finder, no matter what environment you put, put them in. In other words, if, if they weren't finding fault with God and His commandments, they'd be finding fault with anything else they were a part of. And what they don't realize, but we need to realize, is that that it is this flaw in their life that is driving them in part and not any flaw in God. There are people who complain because complain is in them. And it wouldn't matter where you put them, they would complain uh, about uh, what they were in the middle of. And then in verse 16, and oh, here we get it in, in, in all of its technicolor and clarity. They want to walk according to their own lusts. There we go. Now we got the bottom line. This is what the big fight against God is all about and His commandments and all is, is that now it, 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 it restricts me related to some lust that I want to engage in. Of course, Jude has laid this out repeatedly in this section, apparently because we can't hear it enough as, as Christians that they want to live a life of obeying the lusts and the desires of their flesh as opposed to obeying uh, God's commandments, and they uh, don't like being told that they cannot. And that's what's behind uh, the whole thing of the grumbling campaign and, and the complaining uh, cam campaign. And then he tells us further in verse 16, they mouth great swelling words. That? Now that's, those are four interesting words. Mouth great swelling words. There's a word picture. I wonder what comes into your mind. I hope I don't come into your mind. But it's like a, a, a circus clown or something. Great swelling uh, words. I see big lips somehow and, and all of this mouth. Uh, uh, so here Jude is saying that they possess uh, tremendous vocabularies and, and oratory skills in their attack upon God's truth. But Jude says all that they are saying is hot air. It's without any substance and it's an expression of their pride. They're full of pride and hot air. And, and when you leave their presence, that, that's, what you, that's what you're left with. And, and unfortunately, even in Christendom, uh, pride, impressive, impressive vocabularies, oratory skill uh, can make you a fortune and make you very, very uh, popular if you possess these things. And in our culture, again, even in Christendom, oftentimes they're given greater weight than substance and truth. And so they talk, and 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 in the end, they say nothing. And sometimes, sometimes when, you, when you get under this kind of a person, especially if they fill a pulpit, uh, that person can talk for 40 minutes, and you will, you will be completely engaged in what they're saying. And you will walk out to your car, and if somebody says, what did he say? you won't have the foggiest idea. But there's something about vocabulary, oratory, presence, and just the ability to speak well that can convince people. And these people can be uh, very, very uh, good at it. But eloquence is never a substitute for truth. You notice in verse 16, they flatter people to gain advantage. So in, in addition to having this impressive vocabulary, impressive communication skills. They also know how to flatter people as a means of manipulating them to take their position concerning the rejection of some commandment uh, or commandments of God. And most of us are suckers for flattery. And uh, I have a friend that I've known since I was a brand new Christian, and um, if anybody came up to him and gave him a compliment and was going to stop at one compliment, he would say, well, what else have you noticed about me? <laughs> You're on a roll here. Don't stop with one compliment. And, uh, and it was his way of kind of deflecting. He, he wasn't good at being praised. It was his way of deflecting uh, the thing. 
But, but we can be very prone to let our guard down when we've been flattered. Uh, somebody remembers our name or whatever the mechanism or means is. You get a little bit older like me and somebody flatters you, you move your wallet from your back pocket into your front pocket. Uh, <laughs> because you know there's not that much to flatter about. Uh, this is a, this is, I'm in the middle of a con. And, uh, and so people will uh, walk away uh, in a, uh, in a, uh, from a sermon, again, given in a church of such a person or in a private conversation with such a person, and they'll think, as, as he's so engaging or she's so engaging and flattering and knowing how to work a crowd and the whole deal. And, and, and they'll make a person think, wow, he's such a nice guy. How could God reject him on the basis of his sexual practices or his, his substance abuse or whatever it might be? You know, I think he has a legitimate with God re regarding this. And there's the feeling sorry on, on the thing. And they know uh, how to do that. And uh, people don't know when that kind of thing happens that they've fallen for one of the oldest uh, sales trick uh, around. Telling people what they want to hear for the purpose of manipulating them and then uh, getting, them, uh, getting something from them. And we can fall for this, uh, especially if we recognize in ourselves as, as a Christian that we crave the approval of other people more than we crave the approval of God. We'll be more susceptible to this, this kind of, of a, a device. And it's, it's a dangerous thing to be susceptible to. The Apostle Paul, he nipped it at the bud in his life. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, he said, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. No one is a good person or a nice person or a loving person who endeavors to convince Christians to disregard God's commands. And it doesn't matter how they present themselves physically or verbally or intellectually or emotionally, and uh, it is disrespectful toward God, and it is harmful to people. He says further in verses 17 and 18, uh, they are mockers who walk according to their own godly lusts. And so Jude reminded them, and he reminds us that mocking is a well-worn device by these kinds of people against God and against God's people, and we shouldn't let it surprise us. And so their mocking is directed against anyone who stands in opposition to them, declaring themselves to be a Christian, and uh, then living according to their own uh, ungodly uh, lusts. In other words, whatever their body uh, tells them to do. And this is uh, so important to understand about these kind of people. They know how to read people. Uh, they're very, very uh, good at it, uh, typically. If you go to Israel and you go into the uh, old city <clears throat> and go through the, the bazaar and into some of the different shops and all, and uh, uh, you, may, you may think you're in control of a situation when you're trying to buy something, you, you have never been more out of control uh, of a situation. They can, re before you open your mouth, they know where you're from. They are students. And, and, and then when you open their mouth, in 10 seconds, they know what device will work on you to buy half the merchandise in the shop. And, uh, and so they're good. And, and of course, there's nothing wrong uh, with that in, in, that kind of a, uh, in that kind of a setting. But these people are very, very uh, good as well. And they, they uh, know how to read people. They flatter the group that they think they can persuade, and then they mock those that they know that they can't. 
And when you're dealing with this kind of person, it's very instructive in terms of how they see you with whether they flatter you or whether they mock you in, in the, the, uh, the uh, relationship. And mockery, of course, a very, very powerful methodology for intimidation and silencing a, a foe for the simple reason that nobody likes to be mocked. It's not a, a pleasant experience for, uh, for uh, any of us. And so you get mocked if you stand for God. Is it, you know, they're old-fashioned, they're legalists, they're narrow-minded, they're all Pharisees over there, and, and uh, uh, the times have passed them by. It's a new age, and they don't get it. Things have changed, and, and so the mocking uh, goes on. But to be forewarned is to be forearmed, and uh, really to wear that kind of mockery and that kind of scorn is a badge of honor. Because to be mocked or scorned by those people says something good about a Christian and the stand that we're making in our relationship with the Lord. Jesus taught, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so, they di so did their fathers to the false prophets. There are many, many people in this world I do not want to speak well of me. I would be deeply concerned if they spoke well uh, of me. There are so many people in this world whose mockery and rejection I welcome. Anyone in the abortion industry or anyone who is pro-abortion, anyone in the pornography industry, anyone in the human trafficking industry, anyone in the drug trafficking uh, industry, and most of all, anyone who calls on God's people to casually rebel against Him and His commandments and then endeavors to redefine Christianity away from how it's defined in the Scriptures. And then he says in verse 19, they are sensual uh, persons. And this certainly involves uh, sexual sensuality, but supremely it refers to uh, they are people who live, they think, they make decisions in their life based upon their senses, based upon their feelings, based upon their physical urges, their emotional urges, rather than based upon uh, the Word of God. And they are a person who does not understand the difference between a soulish experience and a spiritual experience. And there's a world of difference between the two. A soulish experience is an emotional experience. A spiritual experience is a spiritual uh, experience that, that, that happens. Where, for instance, if you go to a church, not, I'm not identifying any church, just say hypothetically, you walk into a church, and you sit through the service and the washing, the, the, the worship, and how everything is presented, <clears throat> and then the teaching, and you leave and you walk out to your car and you just have a, a nagging feeling that those people just tried to move me emotionally rather than spiritually. I don't sense that uh, I, I had the experience of the Holy Spirit now being involved in all of that. It was just the manipulation of music and lights and and uh, clever sayings and all of this to move me emotionally. And it's important to realize there's a difference between a soulish experience and a spiritual experience. And you can walk into a, another church and everything is as plain and simple as it, as it can be, but you walk out and you say, God was there. God met with me. God spoke to me. That place was all about Him, all about honoring uh, Him. And yet, these people, uh, in, in terms of how they operate, very, very sensual, and, uh, and they know how to use and, and prey upon, uh, they're victims of their own emotions, and to prey upon the emotions of others to move them. And of course, this is something that needs to be uh, spoken of a little bit within our culture. Somebody said, uh, some time ago, I'll adapt it just a little bit, but in terms of our culture, the question he asked is, how do you connect with a culture that hears with its eyes and thinks with its feelings? 
That's the world that we live in. And it's a, they call it postmodern. Used to be, um, you'd look at things and say, you been, begin here, and then here's the process, the linear thing, and you get right here, and then this is going to be the end result of it, and all, and that, of course, is disappearing. It's very much disappearing. We're a very emotional culture. We make decisions on the basis of culture. We determine right and wrong on the, um, I mean, on the basis of, of emotion. And you can see even in people, if you're my age, say, you can even uh, recognize it within your own lifetime. When I was growing up, people used to ask the question, well, what do you think of this? And you would answer, I think. Nobody does that anymore. The question is, how do you feel about this? Oh, I feel. And I'm continually having to catch myself to say, no, that, this has nothing to do with what I feel. What do I think in this situation? And then say uh, what I think. You get, a, you get somebody that's involved in sales, and let's say they're selling uh, vacuum cleaners or cars. They don't ask you what you think. They don't want you thinking about anything. So how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that color or feel it? And they know you keep them in the feeling range and you're going to sell stuff. And you won't be as success successful, depending on your product, moving them into the thinking, in, into the thinking uh, area. And so this sensual persons and the uh, being moved emotionally by themselves, this is the determination, is what I feel determines right and wrong and uh, truth, and then, uh, and then endeavoring to draw people into that as well. And so easy to do, again, because our culture has done 90% of the work in, in large part. They cause divisions, verse 19. And of course, within a church, anytime you have, these kind, you have one group of people that are trying to get everybody to disobey command or commandments of God, and you have others that look and say, no, God's word is uh, you know, finished in the heavens. This is a done deal. You're going to have conflict, and you're going to have division. And so ultimately, they bring it. And then the most glaring problem at all, of all, he finishes with in verse 19, they do not have the Holy Spirit. They're simply not born again. We're talking about here, he's talking about people that are not born again. You cannot be a Christian without having the Holy Spirit come in you, as Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter, <clears throat> chapter 8. It's a spiritual birth that makes us a Christian. And, um, <clears throat> and so this is uh, for all of their eloquent language and attempts to fit in and all, they're simply uh, not born again. And so here they make the claims typically of, of being truly spiritual, the spiritually in, you know, enlightened ones, and, and Jude says don't be fooled by it. They don't have the Holy Spirit uh, at all. And as a result of their rebellion against God's authority, they lack the capacity to appreciate God's truth and His wisdom, and they lack the capacity to obey God's Word where you really begin to discover ex uh, experientially the beauty and perfection of God's wisdom. And with that, then Jude, he completes this section uh, of his letter of exposing these certain men, these false professors and, uh, that are a threat to the faith in any age, and they must be contended with. And uh, you look at it and you go, I think Jude is a thorough man. I mean, he looked at these people from every angle and laid those things out uh, to us in, I exhaustively here. And, and every single bit of it is necessary. Not just 2,000 years ago, but um, it, it is very necessary today so that we're not seduced or deceived by what is a false Christianity and is headed toward a, a very, very serious judgment. And so God has been very, very transparent in His Word about what Christianity is. He, I mean, He's just as fair as can be. I mean, people wanted to come to Jesus and, and make an emotional decision related to Him or whatever. He told them, count the cost. I mean, we're not collecting scalps here. This is real. This is serious business. Do you want to be my disciple? This is what it's going to take 
And are you willing to put your faith in me and then follow me in, in this way? Nobody can say, oh, boy, I became a Christian. He sprang this whole thing on me. I remember my best friend in high school, he belonged to a Christian cult. And uh, this group, they would have, trying to get young people, they'd have dances and they'd have this thing and that thing and this thing to get people in. And you had no idea you were in anything religious. No ideas. They began to just layer upon layer, just ever so lightly started the indoctrination until it sprung on you way, way, way down the line. God never does that. And so for these folks to come and say God hasn't been fair about Christianity or his treatment of them, he's been black and white clear about what it is. And what isn't fair is to come along as, as part of the, the, the creation rather than the creator and determine that I'm going to change this now on the basis of the lusts of my flesh or uh, my so-called wisdom. Christianity is not a negotiation. This is not a negotiation. It is an offer of a salvation and a way of life that is absolutely perfect and cannot be improved upon. And that's how he presents it. And, and so we need to hear it, not only related to other people that might think of Christianity that way, but so we allow that to test our own lives as well so that we don't, as we leave this section of Jude, and you look at this section, you say, my goodness, what? I mean, that's, that's heavy. It's heavy. But you will never appreciate Jude verse 24 and 25 until you come out of that. Are you going to be happy to hit Jude chapter verse 24 and 25 after the last five weeks? I'm going to be very happy to hit those two verses. And this prepares me, uh, prepares me for it. And, and, and so this is, uh, this is as he lays this out, and again, the great tendency, the longer we walk with the Lord, the, the, the great temptation to not only cease growing as a Christian, but then to somehow uh, think that I can now make Christianity into what I want it to be rather than what it is in the Bible. And then more dangerous to be comfortable in that place and to be comfortable there for long periods of time. And so it's serious business. And what he's saying is serious because it needs to wake us up to the slow indoctrination that goes uh, is going on around us in the culture and even into Christian culture uh, a, a little bit as well. So it doesn't just challenge us about this other group, but it challenges us about not us by, by not becoming a part of that other group or influenced, and whether I have been influenced or not. So it's a needed word, and it's a wonderful word. And we will stop there this morning. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, Jesus says concerning you that if anyone comes to me, I will in no wise cast him out. Now, again, because of the, the selfism of our culture, that hardly has any impact at all. Well, of course you wouldn't cast me out. I'm Damien Kyle or whatever your name is, or whatever. We're the most important people in the world. I'll give you a bumper sticker that, that has my name on it. What is it? My student is, my pastor is. I'll be happy to provide that to you somehow. I'll work on it. But we all have this sense of self-importance that, that it's almost like we're giving God a break to come to Him. When we come to him, we're not giving him a break. He's getting a project, a very, very big project in the form of each of us, but he loves projects. But a person who understands how holy God is and has a sober sense of who and what we really are, 
where we've been, what we've done, what we've seen, what we've said, for a sane person, the question becomes, if I come, will he take me? And that's the question that Jesus answers. And no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, what we've said, what we've been a part of, if you come to him for salvation today, he will in no wise cast you out. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin that relationship with God this morning by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and beginning the glory of this walk. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, we want to, as we close this, really a series of several sermons with um, just the strong sobriety with which your Holy Spirit moved and, and spoke through Jude, we want you to know as we stand here before you that we are very happy to be in the truth and we are thankful that we know the truth and the truth has set us free. And there is not one thing that we would change about you. There is not one thing that we would change about your commandments or your word or this Christian life. We want you to know that we are profoundly grateful to be Christians and to be able to know you and walk with you and to be saved in the way that you have saved us through your Son. From not only our lips, from the bottom of our hearts today, Lord, we say thank you. And we say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.